And uh, we'll, we shall continue our reading in Luke from uh, Luke 1, chapter 1, verse 46 through to um, 55. <clears throat> Mary said, <clears throat> My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. And he, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The word of the Lord. Well, let us pray. Gracious God and Father, we ask of you this morning that we and our spirit and our soul would rejoice in the same way Mary's did, that we would be able to reflect on the beauty of you keeping your promise and what that means for us today and for our future. We thank you, Father God, that we are a people who have received your mercy. And may we rejoice in that as we look at Mary's song together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's, it's hard to imagine uh, any time you read through Mary's song not to at least consider three particular women um, out of all the Christmases in which I've brought God's word to God's people, Mary's song is probably the one where uh, I do every single year without fail um, because it is one that is just so beautiful and so clear. Uh, but this year I want to sort of bring together the two other women alongside Mary, which I think Mary is at least considering uh, when she writes her Magnificat, the song that she um, <clears throat> sings here. Now Mary herself is the chosen servant by God to bring the promised Messiah into the world. Just as Isaiah promised or prophesied and just as the angel declared that a virgin will conceive, this is what Isaiah said, and the angel said that you will bear a son and call his name uh, Jesus. Mary is clearly the person who brings the Messiah into the world. It's just, it's just there with great clarity. But when Mary writes this song, she, I think, is at least considering two other women in particular. The first, of course, is Hannah. Hannah comes to mind because Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2.10 is not exactly a mirror image of Mary's song, but it seems as if Mary would have had Hannah's prayer in mind when she was writing her song because the, of the one, the overlapping structure and the fact that some of the themes are the same. 
Mary at least knows the prayer of Hannah and knows the similarities between what she is praying for when she is given a son by the Lord, though different. Mary is a virgin who conceives. And then Mary, who is given Christ uh, as because she is the chosen servant. But the third woman is the first woman that we cannot overlook, Eve. Eve is known as the mother of all living. And I've always puzzled over why Adam, after he has just received the news that death will come to him because he has disobeyed God, would then give his wife the name mother of all living. It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense until, of course, you see it in light of Mary's song. In other words, when Adam and Eve, before Eve was called Eve, when Adam and the woman were in the garden allowed to eat anything that they like apart from one tree that they were not to eat from, and then of course Eve did take from that tree and gave to her husband, Eve, look, is given a promise to by God in Genesis 3.15 that the Savior, the Messiah, would be the seed of a woman. And as we look into the future, we are looking for this woman in whom um, the promised Savior will come, and it just so happens to be Mary. Mary, it would seem, is the only one who is the mother of all living. That Mary seems to be the true mother of all living, because she is the one who brings the Messiah into the world, who gives life to all, who gives mercy to those who fear him. Jesus is the one who gives life. And so is it the case that Mary recognizes that the promise made to Eve is now being fulfilled in her, that the Messiah being promised via the seed of a woman is actually Mary? In other words, is Mary the second Eve? Now, we're used to speaking of Adam and then the second Adam being Christ. But is it the case that Mary uh, is the second Eve? Now, of course, not in the same way that Christ is the second Adam. But do the promise of uh, Genesis 3.15 that the, the serpent crusher will be via the seed of a woman is only fulfilled in one person, and that is, of course, Mary. And so it's hard to perhaps read uh, Mary's song without thinking of at least these three women, Mary herself, Hannah and her prayer, and of course the first woman to whom the promise was made uh, to. Now, I'm not one for uh, studying paintings, but I do like looking at beautiful paintings. And I've never been to the Sistine Chapel or ever looked at the Sistine ceiling other than what I have seen in books or magazines or on the internet, and you can picture it. But it's quite clear from when you look at those pictures that Eve is the central focus. And in one of those pictures, Eve with her right hand during the temptation or just after, because the picture's not entirely clear which comes first. Well, the picture's clear, but it's one picture, and you have to read the picture in the same way you would read Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, for instance. You have to read it almost from left to right. But in that picture, you'll notice, if you pay attention, that Mary, with her right hand and her middle finger, is pointing, as it would seem, to her womb. 
And is Michelangelo in this most famous painting telling us something us through art that Mary understood, that Eve understood that the promised Messiah would come from the womb of a woman? It's just, whether it's true or not, it's just showing us that people in the past have wrestled with the beauty of how the Messiah will be brought into the world. And of course, when you draw a line as to where Mary's finger, Eve's finger, sorry, points to, it points to her womb and then through her womb to the very creation of Adam. And there, of course, in Christ, we have the second Adam. Is this just guesswork? Or is there an element of truth in it by where we can see yet all of these things are wonderfully connected together. So I think it's almost impossible to truly appreciate Mary's song without at least considering Hannah and Eve as the, ba- the necessary background to truly appreciate why she writes the song that she does. So, in many ways, Mary's song is both old and new. It's old in that it is drawing from Old Testament promises, from Hannah's prayer and the context Hannah lives in, and of course, Mary's present day context. Hannah prays the prayer that she does because she understands that God will reverse the conditions of his people with mighty power. He will protect his people because he is faithful. Hannah speaks in her prayer of her heart exulting in the Lord. And Mary in her song says her soul magnifies the Lord. There's there's a clear, beautiful overlap here between Hannah's prayer and Mary's song. It's clear in both cases that both women understand what God is about to do or what God is in fact doing. Mary understands what God is doing. Mary understands that God is fulfilling the promises through her. She knows what the promises are. She knows the promises of salvation are about the reversal of the conditions that people live within. And in the same way Hannah rejoices in the Lord, Mary does the same thing. Because when you look at the backstories to both situations, It is about God intervening to reverse the conditions that his people live with. And so there is a special revelation here to Hannah, uh, sorry, to Mary, in that the angel comes telling her that she will bear a son and she is to call his name Jesus. So she is abundantly aware, very clear on what is actually happening with her, to her, and what it means for the son that she brings into the world is actually God the son. God has to fulfill his promises at some point. He has to fulfill them at some point. Jesus has to come into the world at some point. And so in times past, people look forward to the time when that would happen. For us, we look back on when it did happen. And for Mary, she lives at the very period in which it was happening. And this is quite unique in how you actually come to appreciate the fulfillment of a promise. Some look forward, some look back, and some experience it being uh, in their time, which is exactly where Mary finds herself. She carries God. And what I find quite 
beautiful about the image as you think about Mary bringing this child into the world, that at the very time she is feeding this child with her mother's milk, the child is upholding the world. That as she gives this child her mother's milk, that child is holding all things together, including Mary being able to feed him. I mean, just, just think of the implications of what it means for God the Son to be a child and upholding the beauty of everything that is around him. Now, there's so much here in Mary's song, but I think she bases it on Hannah's prayer because of the similar situation. Hannah says, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Mary understands the same thing. Sorry, that was Mary's words. Mary understands the same thing. She's basing it on Hannah's prayer. She understands that God is about to rescue his people by turning the tables on the circumstances of life. The rich will be brought down, the poor will be exalted high. This is a complete reversal. Salvation is about reversing the conditions that you live within, both within your heart and ultimately the material blessings uh, that you perhaps live currently without. The rich will be brought low, the proud will be scattered, the people of God will be rescued from their enemies, the humble will be exalted, the hungry will be filled, and the rich will be sent away empty. This is a reversal. Salvation is about reversing the conditions of life. It is a time of great reversal. And so Mary's song, as you will see, begins in verses 46 to 48 with thankfulness. And the only reason you would begin with thankfulness is if you know what you are thankful for. And she's thankful for three things in particular. Firstly, it is God's power, God's holiness, and God's mercy. The power of God to be able to bring about the change that he promised. Then, of course, the holiness of God means that you can rest on God's character to be able to fulfill the promise. How do I know God? that you will keep your promise? How, how do I know that you will keep your promise made to your people of old? And the answer is because I'm holy, or to put it more simply, because I said so. God can be held to his word because of who he is. He is a holy God. And so we begin with thankfulness. We rest in the power of God because God is holy. And of course, with that power and holiness, God brings about the mercy that is shown to the people who fear him. From generation to generation, God is no respecter of men, women, boys, and girls. If you fear him, you will receive his mercy. He is no respecter of men. And so again, you see the reversal of the conditions that people live within. And then of course, uh, that's in verses 51 to 53, the reversal. And then in 54 to 55, we have the covenantal reality that God remembers. He remembers his people. And as we said last week, while you may have grown up in churches that taught that God does not have any grandchildren, and I understand why that's said, because each person has to repent and believe for themselves, but that's exactly what the covenant teaches anyway. What we should never forget is that when God makes the covenant, 
He makes it with Abraham and his descendants. God may not have grandchildren, but he does have descendants according to the promise. And Mary, again, just like Zachariah did, is echoing that covenantal reality. That the reason why we can live the way that we do, the reason why we can trust God the way that we do, is because God has made this promise. I have something to base my life of faith on. I have, I have a reason to bring myself and my children and my children's children's up in the promise because it is made not just to one generation but to every generation. And every generation that fears the Lord will receive his mercy. There's the covenantal reality that we have here. So Mary just finds herself in a very unique and privileged position to be able to be experiencing in her day the power of God, the holiness of God, and the mercy of God in a particular way. What we see is a focus on salvation, but salvation as it's described here is a reversal of conditions. Mary looks forward to transformation. She looks forward to what has been promised about the rich and about the poor and about those who fear the Lord. All of this will be fulfilled. The proud will be brought low, the humble will be exalted, the hungry will be fed, and the rich will go without. And so the distinction that Mary makes is one that you could easily read over, but I don't want you to. And that is the condition of life measured against the condition of the soul. The condition of your life measured against the condition of your soul. That is life circumstances and then the condition of your heart before God. Remember, it's not just about posture. It is about how your heart comes before the Lord your God. And Mary's song seems to be drawing out these distinctions so that we would understand what God is actually looking for. He's looking for those who will fear him. From generation to generation, there is mercy to those who fear him. This is what God looks to. Now, in her magnification of the Lord, you'll notice that Mary is not divided within herself, though it can come across that way. She says that her soul and spirit gives thanks for different things. Her spirit rejoices, her soul magnifies. But this is just Mary's way of describing that our whole self, without leaving anything out, is drawing attention to the Lord God who is the Savior. Mary's not a divided person as though her soul is giving thanks for one thing and her spirit for something else. No, she, she's trying to draw our attention to the fact that our whole being is giving thanks to the Lord here. And is giving thanks to the Lord for what he has promised and now what he has done. And the focus here is that God is both Lord and Savior. I know that this has been a popular debate in years gone past. I even addressed it earlier this year. But it's quite clear, even before we get into the book of Acts, that the gospel message is that Christ is both Lord and Savior. He is both one and at the same time. And Mary's song gets there first with a beautiful and poetic balance by structuring it this way. This is about what God will do. This is about God being no respecter of any persons. 
Those who fear him will receive his mercy. It doesn't matter what generation you are in, the promise holds true. Those who fear the Lord will receive his mercy. But the proud, the proud and the rich, were they are people who extol themselves above their condition, their, especially their spiritual condition before the Lord their God. They are people who think more highly of themselves than they ought. I mean, if you read the confessions and you read the catechisms, you will learn that uh, straight after the flood, that one of the one ways in which God described humans is that the thoughts and, our intention, and intentions of our heart were only evil all of the time. So it's really not hard, is it, to get above your station when you see yourself in the light of what God actually says. Good teacher, the rich ruler said, had to be corrected by Jesus. No one is good but God alone. No one is good but God alone. So it's very easy, isn't it, that with perhaps pride and with money to get above your station, to become extolled in your own doing. So the rich extol themselves above their conditions. The rich perhaps extol themselves above the conditions of life because they can buy their way out of trouble. The trouble is, is that's not really where the issue are, is. The issue is in the heart, and this is what Mary is getting at. The heart is the problem, because it is the heart that does not fear the Lord when it should. It is the heart that is not responding to God in faith and repentance when it should. You fear the Lord when you understand that it doesn't matter how much money you have or how proud you are of your achievements, that it is God who holds your life and future within your hands. That will bring you down to earth very quickly. That I am what I am before God on my knees in prayer and nothing more. That's all that I am. That's what Murray McShane said. All that I am before God is what I am on my knees before him. That's it. Nothing more than that. And whatever I am beyond that is what I am because of the grace and the mercy and the promise of God given to me. It is the condition of your heart that matters. And this is where the mercy is shown to people. Those who fear the Lord receive mercy. Now, I want to be able to convince you, because there's a lot of young people here, and as you grow up, you'll start thinking through the possibilities of which option is the best option. And often it is put in these categories. Would you rather be poor and not have God? Would you rather be poor and have God? Or would you rather be rich and not have God? Or would you rather be rich and have God? Now the temptation is, of course, that the last option is the most desirable and the best. But you think about the dangers that God speaks about when he describes money and how we cannot serve two masters. And so it clearly is that to have God is the best option of all. But the others come and go, they don't really matter. As long as you have God, you're going to be fine. As long as you belong to God and your heart is with God, it really doesn't matter quite so much if you are rich or poor because all things are going to be taken care of by God. 
And so the temptation to believe that to have the last option, to be both rich and have God, is though it, that's the best option, well, it could be the most dangerous option if you cannot handle the riches that God gives you. And so both the rich and the poor have dangers. We tend to think that only the rich have the biggest dangers when it comes to money. No, no. The poor do as well, probably best illustrated in Plato's discussion with Diogenes. That Plato understood that the, the rich can be prideful, but so too can the poor. And one day, the story goes like this. That Plato enjoys the pleasures of life. He has nice things. His home is a testament to all the material blessings. Diogenes, on the other hand, has nothing and purposely has nothing. He purposely goes without. He rejects having too many material goods. He lives in a hole, or he lives in at least a small, confined space. While Plato has lots of space, and he fills that space with material good things. And one day, Plato invites Diogenes around to his home, and on the floor there is a beautiful rug. And Diogenes walks in and he tramples his feet and rubs his feet into the rug of Plato. And he says, thus I trample upon the pride of Plato. And Plato says, of course you do, with greater pride. With greater pride. You see, some people can just be so proud that they have nothing in the same way you, someone can be proud that they have everything. You see, the point here is, is that what God is looking at is not the rich and the poor. This is not the natural division, though generally speaking, the rich are proud and the poor are hungry. The poor go without. That's a general principle. It is true throughout history. But it is equally true that you can be very proud as a poor person, too proud to come before the Lord, too proud to fear him, in exactly the same way the rich are. And so whether you're rich or poor, you can both be kept from the Lord by not fearing him as you should. The point here is, is that God is no respecter of men. There is mercy shown to those who fear him from generation to generation. Doesn't matter who you are or where you are, how much you have or how little you do not have or little you don't have, God is no respecter of men. He shows mercy to those who fear him. And so Mary's song is about the reversal of conditions, the bringing low of those who have elevated themselves, lifting up those who are poor because they cannot elevate themselves. Rejected and oppressed they are, but their condition will be reversed only in light of the gospel and kingdom that comes in Christ Jesus. And therefore, from one generation to another generation, God's promises are kept, if God's promises are remembered by the people themselves. And even if they're not, the whole point behind the covenant is that God remains faithful even when his people become faithless. God's people are known for abandoning the faith that they have been given, of losing faith with God. 
And God shows up again and again and again because the promise that he made is based on his holiness and therefore he can be held to his word. And the salvation he brings is a salvation that that reverses the conditions of life and future. Well, here's the exhortation as we close. What Mary's song reminds us of, and what I've actually reminded you of a few times since I've been here, is that time and truth go hand in hand. That given enough time, the truth always comes out. You cannot escape the truth. In other words, how long will people continue to rebel against the Lord their God until the tables are turned on them? Because that's what will happen. The time of grace is a time in which you have time to turn before the tables are turned on you. Mary's song teaches us that we belong to a table-turning God, meaning, children, that if things don't appear as you think they should in the world as you read God's word, then give it time. God's word will always prove itself true. As you, if you young people are looking at the world and thinking this doesn't look a lot like what God says it should look like, that's because we're not seeing it in the way God wants us to see it. Give it time, because time and truth go hand in hand. Given enough time, what God says is true will appear to be true in time and throughout time. And so we as people may look to those in the world as though we have got it all wrong. But that's nothing more than blind boasting on their part. Mary makes it clear. God is a table-turning God. God is merciful. God is powerful. And God is holy. God is no respecter of men. And for those who fear him, there is mercy for you. The point here is, is that those who belong to God, though low, always come out on top. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Mary's song. We thank you that we have been given these words, words which we can reflect on, trust in, be encouraged by, and know, Father God, that what was true then continues to be true now. And for this we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.